So key texts, we've obviously looked at Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. It gives us the three steps, talks about the authority of the court. Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26, the key one is verse 23. It says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So general rule of the principle that... Worship itself, especially the sacraments, are things that should remind us to go deal with conflict resolution. So, if you are offended, if you have offended, you would go to each other. And it's commonly said by pastors, especially in sermons about conflict resolution, when putting these two verses next to each other, people say, ideally, the two people would meet each other on the way to go re-reconcile to each other. Right? So that would be the thing that's going on. So, page two, reminder, John 7.51 says, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? The answer is no, it does not. Proverbs 18.17, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. So let me remind you, the basic process, first, step one, is go one-on-one. There are exceptions to have more than one person, and those have been explained, but step one is go one-on-one. This could be several meetings. If this does not conclude swiftly, people are often tempted to cut off the effort and just go, ah, whatever. And it's pretty easy for both people to just kind of go, this isn't worth it, and you just go, I don't really like you anyways, and they go, I don't really like you anyways, and they go, great, we don't like each other. This sounds fantastic. Let's just not do this anymore. How about that? And that is sin. And that is wickedness. That is allowing schism in the body, that allows the leaven of hypocrisy and hatred, that destroys things. We have no right to do that. And so, you cannot just agree to dislike each other. You have to deal with the issue. Now, you can still dislike each other and love each other. The idea of liking, finding it pleasant to deal with somebody, finding it pleasant to be around somebody is ideal. Hopefully we would all like each other. More importantly, however, and what generally will grow into liking, is that we seek to love each other, to seek each other's good, to bless each other, to apply the law of God towards each other. And as we work together and as we resolve problems together and seek to be blessings to each other and to bear burdens for each other and with each other, what we will find is that we grow to like each other. And so, this has to be worked through, not because of the value of liking each other, but because of the glory of God. And so, if you can't resolve things in step one, if you find that it's not concluding swiftly, if you find it difficult, okay, I want to I communicate this well. If you are both trying and it's a hard issue, okay, great, have multiple conversations, work at it for a while, maybe two, three significant efforts to kind of work through the process. If you think the other party doesn't really care, do not waste your time or theirs with trying to have a bunch of prolonged meetings about it. Try one time, and if it's pretty clear to you the person does not care, raise it to step two. People care a whole lot more when other people are watching. And that waste of time is that person's fault. When they had to bring in, you had to bring in other people. That is that person's fault. You are not wasting those people's time. That guy was wasting your time. And you raised it to avoid wasting time. 
So step two, you go with one or two witnesses that are mutually agreed upon, or you each bring one witness. There could be parties that are larger, but the point is that's step two. Step three, bring charges by your own mouth and by the mouth of at least one other witness to the church court. Okay, so the one-on-one, the with witnesses, the church court. Ideally, you got a bunch of mature people, and everybody works on step one real well. Everybody's trying real hard. Everybody loves each other, and they're working so hard to just do this stuff efficiently and not waste other people's time. Well, here's the reality, okay? Let me, let me tell you something that you already know. We live in a world where evangelicalism does not talk about this at all, and conflict resolution is not a part of the way things work in the world in general. And so we're going to have atheists, Roman Catholics, broader evangelicals, Mormons, whatever, coming in here, and they are going to have zero experience when they get converted, when they join the church, when they're here, dealing with conflict resolution in a biblical way. So what's that going to mean? That means there's going to be a lot of step one stuff where the other side does not care at all. If that's the case, then the way to raise it is to go to step two. Okay, so step two, we do not want to be time wasters about step one or about step two. But step two is sort of the catching point where you can spend a lot of time even with a person who initially seemed to be acting in bad faith. Okay, initially somebody seems to be acting in bad faith. They don't seem to care. Everybody starts to care when multiple people are watching, especially if one or two of those people are people they care about the opinion of. So this pushes people. So I want you guys to think of step two as the place where you want to avoid it by doing step one. You want to do step one well. But if the other side gives you evidence of acting in bad faith, Step two helps you to avoid a bunch of time wasting. And step two raises the seriousness of it and helps to get somebody else's voice involved, especially when there's a lot of immaturity, when people are coming in, new converts, whatever. So you got that. So if you had a church that's, let's say this, let's say two generations from now, Lord willing, there's a presbytery of, you know, there's first Puritan Reformed Church and 43rd Puritan Reformed Church, and there's so many of them, we're, we're having trademark battles over the Puritan Reformed Church name. It's just, you know, it's a great name. Now, in that scenario, what we have is probably a mature condition where you've got lots of people, and step one can be done very seriously, very efficiently, very well, and all the problems are, are coming up about, you know, the vowel points about Hebrew, right? That's great. That's the fantastic world to be in. We are not there. So this idea that step two is sort of a catch-all for how you deal with things. And not only that, there's not only the bad faith thing, there's also just the difficulties of people not being trained in this and then being adults. Okay, so you just, you just, they're not used to how to deal with this. So step two kind of pushes everybody to formalize it and helps to get multiple voices in on this. Now, let's think about this. In your lifetime, if you've ever tried to do Matthew 18, what you find is step one, people don't want to do it. If you can get them to do step one, they don't want to do it more than once. 
If you can get them to do it more than once, they don't want to go to step two. When you start pushing for step two to happen, they say this isn't necessary. If they agree that it's necessary, they sort of turn it into something where they quickly determine whether the witnesses are on their side. If the witnesses are not immediately on their side, they say the whole thing's a kangaroo court. And then they start denouncing whatever church court might have been involved down the line if it ever got there. This is an experience for at least 90% of the Matthew 18 processes I have tried to go through. So, step two helps to put pressure to make people actually try to go through things. And if there's relationship with the witnesses, the witnesses start to help those other people to stabilize out and to make it so that they are not going to just start denouncing anything. The other thing is relationships with people who are not covenanted in a church, they're far more likely to throw off step two. If they're a part of some other church, they're likely to just cut off the relationship. So our goal is to figure out how do we communicate with other churches ultimately to make it so that we can encourage conflict resolution to happen. And so if we do it well here and we train other people to do it, then we will likely see a culture of change. And that doesn't mean like instantaneous, but it doesn't mean forever. It doesn't mean just two generations from now. Five years from now, if the Lord continues to grow our numbers and we grow in maturity and we, we continue to practice habits that are according to the Word of God, as we work through these things and these get habituated, there's a cultural norm and maturity to it that allows people to actually start to see this and to feel how it's good and to have stories about it. And so the cultural norm is what we want to build. What has occurred as a cultural norm in evangelicalism is to say, and in, and in the cults, but in evangelicalism even, is to say that this process is something that really shouldn't be dealt with, and whoever pushes it, the thing is, you just need to forgive, you need to show grace, you need to overlook, you need to move on, whatever. And so there's sort of this effort to close the things out. So our goal is to actually resolve conflict as opposed to peace-faking, and so we'll be talking about step two, mostly, for the remainder of the time today. So, reminder, point four, page two, point four. Charges should remain at the level of publicity of the offense or lower, unless difficulty, danger, or the severity and criminality of the situation calls for escalation. We talked about that in detail earlier. Remember, the resolution needs to be as public as the offense or as public as the awareness of the conflict, whichever is higher. Now, tail-bearing or gossip is a trap for disorder and waste. We talked about the definition of this. Here's the short version. There are all the exceptions in the last document. Talking about a matter when it is not positively honoring to the other party that you're discussing, when it's not your business, and when you're not helping to solve the problem, that is certainly gossip. So we need to also remember that we can judge acts that people are aware of without gossiping. Revealing an act that people were not aware of because it was not public or because it was um, something that we really shouldn't be talking about, that becomes gossip. 
if we are listing it without proper reason. When we are considering judgment of an act, we need to be willing to go and inquire before we judge. Or if we have a negative judgment, because it seems clear, we should still seek to go inquire unless it's something small enough that we can simply overlook it. So, where do we start the process? One thing I want to say, going off of the bleak picture that I painted for you is, I have found that in this church, there has been a positive reception of conflict resolution because people here are tired of the fact that people do not want to do conflict resolution. And so the joyful thing is that there has been a desire to work through conflict. And so, if I were to talk about what happens here overwhelmingly, it's the reverse. Instead of the 90% of the time when you get to step two, people just throw everything off, instead what I have found here is, overwhelmingly, stuff just gets resolved because people are thinking about the Word of God, seeking to apply it, and seeking to resolve things with each other in a serious way. That should help you to see when the law of God is taught to people who believe the gospel versus when the law of God is not taught, even if people believe the gospel, what happens in a culture is the stark difference. 90% bad way versus 90% a good way. That type of a difference is what we're talking about. So where do we start the process? We should always start at step one unless... The original offense was more public than just the parties involved in the dispute. Or it's overly complex, or there's a weakness of the parties. There's some sort of a decency issue that requires it be dealt with at a more public level. There's danger to the persons, or there's a severity, like a grievousness or criminality of the offense. Okay, so those things hopefully have been repeated enough that they're starting to sink in as to legitimate reasons to deal with things at levels other than step one. Step one is the principal place where things need to go. Now, remember, we talked about the idea that things can be raised in their publicity in a disorderly way. When that happens, we should simply deal with it at the level that it's been raised to, unless it goes immediately to the court and there's not enough witnesses. A court is not allowed to hear a case unless there are two witnesses or more. Why is that? Because it prevents frivolous cases, and in particular, it prevents cases from being brought against officers who are doing public business, who are going to be in basically constant conflict. And you could always say that basically anything they're doing is public business. And so you can take it to the court right away. So unless there's two voices saying this thing was sin, the court doesn't hear it. That's not just true for officers, though. That's true for everybody. So if there's not witnesses, you don't hear it. So step two is a barrier to prevent a wastage of being elevated too high too fast. There have to be two witnesses that are willing to bring a charge for it to go to a court. B, 7B, on page three. If a private party raises an issue from step one to step two wrongly, and we simply raise the concern in that process, we say this is being done wrongly. If they don't agree, then we simply proceed 
If the two parties do not agree, we proceed with step two, and then the witnesses should also advise on whether the raising of the situation to step two was warranted or not. And a part of the repentance needs to be dealing with improper raising of things. It needs to be proper apologies. And if that happens repeatedly, you start to have issues with a person who keeps raising things unnecessarily. You deal with that in terms of greater discipline and starting to have uh, things where that person is dealing with bearing the costs of that. So you deal with the disorderly raising of the matter as with all sin. If the matter is raised to level three wrongly with insufficient witnesses, then the court must refuse to hear the matter and require a step two meeting. Alternately, if it's like a criminal charge, for example, and there's just insufficient witnesses, then you simply are unable to hear it and it might be inappropriate. I mean, if you have somebody make certain charges, you wouldn't want to make somebody meet with somebody else, right? So the issue is there, you simply, you cannot convict a person. And the other thing is, if the person is making a claim that requires protection, you try to make accommodation to both treat the person who's being charged under law as though they are innocent and treat the person who is charging as though their charge is true. And you seek to accommodate both of those realities knowing that God will judge it. And so that is sometimes what you're stuck with. That's difficult and requires a lot of effort to manage. And so I'm not going to go into that right now other than to say that exists, and if that ever comes up, we will deal with it. E, 7E, unlawful spreading of information or slander can become the basis for some sort of recompense or consequence that involves duties of restoration in money or time by service along with equally public retraction. So the retraction helps to restore reputation. The service or the money help to restore some of the costs. And that's how you can deal with things when you have frivolous raising of things frequently. So step one, private meeting, discussion of the involved parties alone. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Here's the summary. Page four, ordinary order, private offense. You immediately question what's going on. You immediately comment or express a concern. You immediately rebuke, and there's a private resolution. That is the ideal. That's what happens in a mature state, and I hope to see that happening. But when we find that there is an evidence of bad faith, you go to start quickly considering what else to do. When somebody is giving evidence of good faith and you're both working through it, you're both talking about what do the scriptures teach, is this right or wrong or whatever, you continue in that and you work through that for a while through much discussion. So who can be involved in that for it to still be step one? Parties in conflict, so there could be like you know, two people that are arguing with two other people, that would still be step one. Um, you might have a wise counselor or a person that's helping you to be a peacemaker. You might have a relevant authority like a parent or a husband or somebody who's helping you to deal with things for decency. And those who are already involved, that might raise it to a step two so that if they're not a party, if it's another person who's involved because they witnessed it, then it's sort of automatically a... A step two. So that difference between a modified step one that has another person involved versus a step two is this. Step one with more than one, per, more than a one-on-one -on -one meeting is when people 
are there for the purpose of being counselors or for decency or for safety or something like that, if they are there for the purpose of being a witness because of the fact that there's a need to deal with the gathering information to help to deal with the conflict beyond just the two parties, then it's step two. If there's confusion, just consider it step two. Okay, just the goal here is to avoid wasting a ton of time arguing about which step it is. When there's confusion, just count it as step two. And you just have the people paying attention and you're considering how to deal with things. Examples of people who need people for decency or who can always go to get counsel. Children under the age of 20, the, the scriptures teach 20 is the age of majority. Okay? 18 is our culture, I don't care. You know what I do care about? What does the Bible say? The Bible says 20. You're a man in Israel at 20. So, if you're a child and you're under 20, you may approach your parents about issues outside of the household and do not worry about it being gossip. If you're talking to your parents about it, maybe you've got a sinful motive. That's your problem. Repent before God for that. But you're talking to them is fine. And your parents can talk to you and they can give you counsel. Do not fear talking to your parents. If you are 20, if you are under the age of 20 and you need counsel about something, talk to your parents. They are safe counselors for you. If you're married, if you're married, your spouse is someone you can talk to and it is not gossip. So you can talk to each other about things. You might have evil motive and you need to repent of that. But you have a right to talk to your spouse about a problem and to be able to talk with each other to be on the same page. Employers or managers of a company who are discussing issues in the business are not gossiping when they talk about the stuff and people they are managing. They have a lawful authority to do that. And they can decide where they want to overlook. They are a party. They are working together to determine whether to overlook things or not. They are working together in that capacity. Parents are doing that with children. Parents are doing that together in terms of their households. These are parties. Officers of the church or officers of state can consult with each other freely to help with the burden of government. And this includes in the presence of officers' wives, since they are also required to have certain qualifications and are responsible to work with their husbands. So, right now, that would mean if Deacon Schaefer and I are trying to figure out how to manage something, we can talk with each other about it, and it is not gossip. If we unnecessarily raise it to other people, if we cause some sort of a problem or disorder, that could be sin. But he and I talking about some problem that we're aware of in the church to try to figure out how to handle it well is us trying to fix the problem. And so we don't want to make it overly burdensome, especially in these relationships, child to parent, spouses with each other, managers or employers working together to figure out how to manage stuff, or officers of the state or church. We don't want to have a bunch of boundaries that make it really difficult for them to be able to talk with each other about the stuff that they are managing together. We want to encourage those communications. Okay, so that is not gossip if there's that kind of discussion there. 
But we do need to push each other there. If you're talking to your spouse and the two of you talk about something and you have bad opinions and you kind of laugh about evil things and you kind of move on, guess what? That's bad. You guys need to repent of that. What you need to do is to encourage each other to righteousness. If you're talking to your child and your child comes to you and says some bad stuff, you need to call them to repent. If you're a child and you go to your parents and your parents encourage you to do wickedness, you should call them to repent. Okay? So this idea that we, are, we have obligations in all of these conversations, but these are not conversations that are gossiping conversations. Step one is the individual or parties involved in the dispute meeting with no witnesses. Witnesses are specifically not parties in the dispute. Instead, if any persons are present, their purpose is for decency, safety, order, or weakness being strengthened, a lack of skill being helped, difficulty being overcome. Okay, so there's a difference. So page five. Am I the first person to ever think about these distinctions? The Westminster Assembly wrote a directory for private worship. Private is in not public. It includes family worship. So that's what they're talking about. Sections 12 and 13 of this, I have underlined parts. I'm not going to read the whole of it. I would really encourage you to go read the directory of family worship. It is a great document. There's some parts that can be misunderstood, but it is worth meditating on and thinking about. There's a number of excellent things there. So the first part, uh, the underlying, the duties of mutual edification by instruction, admonition, and rebuke are things that we owe to each other. Okay, mutual edification is sort of a key term. It's a, it's a term of art. It's this idea of when you teach each other, not in the pulpit, but instead through discussion with each other. Mutual edification. By instruction, admonition, and rebuke. So all of you as Christians have a private calling to teach. You all have a private calling to teach. To be a Christian is to have the responsibility of a prophet. It is your obligation, every one of you, child to grayhead, to communicate truth to each other. Now, that includes conflict resolution. Conflict resolution is a teaching mechanism. Conflict resolution is a teaching mechanism. It is an ordered Mutual edification process. Conflict resolution is a part of your office of teaching as a Christian. One of the things this talks about is the idea that there are special occasions offered by divine providence for you to mutually edify. Isn't that a delightful way to think about this? You're thinking, when somebody does something really annoying... And I have to apply the innumerable sermons about conflict resolution that I have just had hoisted upon me. This is what I've got to do. Instead, the Westminster Assembly says, which duties respectively are to be performed upon special occasions offered by divine providence? When somebody offends you, it's a special occasion. As namely, when under any calamity, cross, or great difficulty counsel or comfort is sought, or when an offender is to be reclaimed by private admonition, and if that be not effectual, by joining one or two more in the admonition, according to the rule of Christ, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. There's the ordinary Matthew 18 process. This is the private part before it goes to church courts. 13. 
And because it is not given to everyone to speak a word in season to a wearied or distressed conscience, it is expedient that a person, in that case, finding no ease after the use of all ordinary means, private and public, have their address to their own pastor or some experienced Christian. Okay, so if there's some big event going on and you think you need to go to somebody to bring them mutual edification, whether that big event is a calamity or a cross or a great difficulty or somebody asks for counsel, and you go, I don't know that I can do this well, you might take that and go and bring in a more experienced Christian. That might sound like a breach of confidentiality. Right? Somebody says, I need help about this. And you go, I don't know how to help you about this. We need to involve a person who is more experienced, more mature. Or, in the event of, there is an offender who is to be reclaimed. You might try to figure it out, and then you go, I don't know what to do here, or this is hard, or... I don't feel like I can handle this. And so you bring somebody in who is a more mature Christian. It is expedient that a person, in that case, finding no ease after the use of all ordinary means, private and public, so listening to sermons about conflict resolution, have their address to their own pastor or some experienced Christian. But if the person troubled in conscience be of that condition or of that sex, that discretion modesty, or fear of scandal requires godly, grave, and secret friend to be present with them in their set address, it is expedient that such a friend be present. So you can go and ask for people to give you counsel. You can, when you're called by something going on, if you feel like there's a duty to give counsel and you don't know how to do it well, you can call in counsel for that yourself. And if you think having the conversation with the other person would be indiscreet or inappropriate or incompetent or whatever, you can pull in a person for help. That is, that is the chain of stuff that was just explained here in the Westminster Directory of Family Worship. Now, John Knox, who along with five other guys named John, wrote the Scott's Confession. They are joyfully called the Six Johns. They also wrote the Church of Scotland First Book of Discipline in 1560. Okay, so page six. In that, they say the following as regards, this is in chapter seven of that. They say, first, if the offense be secret or known to few men and rather stands in suspicion than in manifest probation, the offender ought to be privately admonished to abstain from all appearance of evil. Okay, so, so get this. On the one side, there's something that's private and it's not real clear that it's sin. Okay, this is the extremity on one side. It's private, nobody's seen it, and it's not real clear that it's sin. You just go up to them, you privately and you say, you know, this kind of looks like it might be sin. You explain yourself to me, but I, I, think, I think you should be careful to avoid this. And here's why it looks like sin and whatever. And you kind of have the conversation back and forth. And maybe that ends there. Maybe they just reject what you said. And you go, that's oh, fine. And they said that it's not sin. And you go, okay, I'm going to charitably interpret you. This is over. This was private. That would be the lightest possible sort of Matthew 18, step one. And it ends with you choosing to charitably interpret. On the other extremity, uh, 
which if he promised to do and declare himself sober, honest, and one that fears God and fears to offend his brethren, then may the secret admonition suffice for his correction. Okay, that's it. That's if he's, he's responded perfectly well. He's going, oh, no, I don't want to look like I'm sinning and, and all that. So that's the perfect response. Okay? But then, if he either condemn the admonition or after promise made do show himself no more circumspect than he was before, then must the minister admonish him. So now this goes to public. To whom, if he be found inobedient, they must proceed according to the rule of Christ, as after shall be declared. Okay, so that's the idea of you, you raise it to the point of going public. Notice it skipped over the second step. Is that because John Knox hadn't read step two of Matthew 18? No, he's, he's giving you the outer bounds. He's going, here's the most private, and here's the best case scenario, and then here's what you do if it keeps going up, being escalated. Then, he says, if the crime be public and such as is heinous as fornication, drunkenness, fighting, common swearing, or execrating, then ought the offender be called in presence of the minister, elders, and deacons where his sin and trespass ought to be declared and aggregged. Scottish word if ever there were one. So that his conscience may feel how far he has offended God and what slander he has raised in the church, in the kirk. Okay, so this idea that it immediately goes to public. Okay, so here's a crime, and it's a public crime. He did it in front of everybody. Not a very good criminal. And it's really clear and heinous. Okay, so he's given us a range of possibilities. And the point that John Knox and the other Johns are giving to us is this idea that there's a range of possibilities from the most mild to the most extreme, and you can deal with it in the most mild way to the most extreme way, and we're having to deal with the details of how that goes. Okay, so this is, that's John Knox showing us some of the same principles that we have talked through. Okay, page seven. Page seven has a bunch of verses that prove to you that to get to a court, you need two to three witnesses. Thank you to the Schaefers for pulling that together for me. Now, these verses help us to understand the context of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is saying, you go in private, why do you have the next step? The next step for the witnesses is it raises the concern, it raises the seriousness, it raises the clarity, and it's preparing to go to court. And you don't go to court without two or three witnesses. And the church court is where you go with believers. So, Numbers 35, 30. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Okay, so that is an example of here is even the most extreme type of crime and you cannot execute a person on the testimony of one person. Okay, so this shows us that for the most extreme sorts of crimes and the most extreme sorts of penalties, and we apply this down the line to everything else, we don't exercise public authority to punish a person without two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. 
So that's not just murder, that's all capital crimes. Deuteronomy 19.15, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any inquiry or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So no court is to hear that rising, this idea of taking the stand, this rising to speak, this coming up before the court. Matthew 18 communicates that as well. 2 Corinthians 13.1, the Apostle Paul gives us an approved example of how he goes through a process of communicating multiple times and uses two or three witnesses. So he has the two or three discussions, and he has the two or three witnesses. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. So this idea of the multiple conversations and the multiple witnesses, we find that principle here displayed by the Apostle Paul. John eight seventeen. It is also written in your is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. In other words, that doesn't mean infallibly that that's the case. Naboth's vineyard, which we talked about last week, I think uh, you you can look at that and find the example of scoundrel witnesses. So you need reliable witnesses. But even then, reliable witnesses are not infallible. So this is not saying that two or three witnesses provide us with absolute certainty of the truth of things. It's saying as a standard of evidence, we accept two witnesses. Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5, 19 to 20, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. So this reaffirms the need for two witnesses. This is about elders. This applies to everybody, not just elders, but it's about elders right here because petty court battles would happen all the time for elders otherwise. And same, the same rule applies to all, but elders are more likely to be in the subject of foolish attacks. This reaffirms the importance of rebuking elders who fail in their office. So we need both. We have to have rebukes against elders that have failed, and we have to, at the same time, apply the evidentiary standard to them. Both things are to be upheld. Due process and rebuke. So one thing that happens in Presbyterian churches that emphasize church courts is an emphasis on the courts and not steps one and two, or a tendency to make it impossible to convict people. One of the things that happened in the late 1800s in the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America is everybody worked so hard to let bad teachers never get convicted that people stopped trying. The last conviction for heresy in the United States in the Presbyterian Church by the General Assembly before it went totally liberal was in the 1870s. And by the 1930s, Without lopping off any bad branches, what happened was the Presbyterian Church was dominated by modernists and the fundamentalists got kicked out. J. Gresham Machen was excommunicated from the PCUSA because, one, he was unwilling to support modernist missionaries and started a missions board that would only send out Orthodox missionaries. And he quit his job at Princeton, Princeton, he was tenured, quit his job 
to go start Westminster Theological Seminary. He was kicked out, excommunicated, because of the fact that he was unwilling to support those liberal institutions. When we do not prosecute heretics and people who flaunt the law of God in public, the result will be that the lawless and the heretics will dominate the system. And for a time, there will be no convictions, and then the only convictions will be the theological conservatives. Without discipline, there will be no purity. Without process, there will be tyranny. Process is necessary to avoid tyranny. And pressing forward and dealing with a reasonable evidentiary basis and not making it impossible to convict heretics and people who commit grievous sins is necessary for purity. The first matter of discipline to go is always doctrine. Hebrews 10, 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So we find throughout the scriptures this idea of the two or three witnesses. Step two is extremely important. It is necessary for step three. It increases the pressure. It helps the weak. It brings external forms. It trains people to deal with public judicature. So let's look at step two. What is step two? Step two is a semi-public meeting. It's a private meeting but it's got some of the elements of sort of a public meeting in that it has increased seriousness. There are three ways that a step two meeting can go. You can have mediation. You can have active witnesses that are sort of participants in a conversation where everybody's just talking about it. Or you can have passive witnesses that sort of just observe what's going on. The benefits of step two that help to solve problems that might not be solved in step one our mediation can help you to sort things out. A person that's asking questions and sort of driving it forward that's not one of the parties can help everybody to become more objective and serious. It increases pressure from having witnesses and therefore increases pressure for integrity. It has the effect of being an evidentiary meeting where information gets sorted out for a person who wasn't there for everything. And it provides you with a preliminary judgment from the, what the witnesses think. Okay, you see how all that would help you to resolve your conflict more objectively. So, it's more formal than a step one conversations. Uh, point 15, the activities of witnesses. So we talked about witnessing and mediation. When one of the witnesses is an obvious superior to the other parties, it would be silly to not have them mediate. So a parent walks in and the kids are arguing. The parent should generally speaking, start to mediate and go, what's going on? And you start to train with what's happening. You're showing them how to do it by mediating. If the witness is not a superior in station, but they are a superior in gifting and age, they should probably still do that. The more clear that is, the more obvious it is that mediation should occur. Now, if it's sort of the pure thing and the witness is making an effort to move things along in the conflict, they're allowing the other people to deal with things, 
but they might step in to try to help to move things along. I hear you saying this. Is that what you're saying? Okay, all that. You know, there's sort of this active effort to help to move the conflict along. And the passive witness would generally just be listening, but they would have a duty to step in when things are going poorly, when somebody's abusing the other person, when there's, there's feelings there. So we'll talk about it a little bit more in a second. Point 16, a court that investigates a matter should never send less than two witnesses to investigate, and it should give back a report from those two witnesses, or else the testimony of the parties would not be sufficient for court action. Point 17, if a witness or a person is asked for counsel and they're too busy, then they may suggest an an alternate person. An elder might suggest a deacon or a less busy elder or some other mature Christian for a task. And so I'm going to be doing that to you more and more. If you start to bring me things where there's a conflict that's going on, I'm going to start doing that more and more, especially sending people to Deacon Schaefer. And he's, yeah, there he is. Okay. I thought he was out of the room, and I was like, great, I'm talking about him. He's not here. Now, this is the, I didn't prep him for this, but he knows. You know. So that idea, I more and more will seek to do that. Now, he's got a pretty full schedule. So guess what he's going to start doing? Looking for mature Christians. So what we're going to do is we're going to train people to help to deal with mediation because that's the only way that we can avoid being constantly clogged up with stuff. That's going to be a part of what we need to do. We need to understand how do we handle these things well with each other. And that trains people to do step one. When you're good at mediation, guess what else you're good at? Step one. And when you've got two people who've been trained for mediation, guess what? It's particularly embarrassing when two people that have been trained for mediation have a conflict and then they need to go to step two and the person looks at them and goes, really? Really? Are we doing this? Is this happening? You guys couldn't figure this out. The level of embarrassment once you're trained and you can't work through it, right, is, is pretty high. So if you have more people trained to do that, not only do you have a higher throughput, but you also have more step one resolution going on. If a witness or a person asks for counsel is too busy, then they might try to ask to bring in somebody else to deal with it. Okay, so I need to do that. I need to be delegating stuff to Deacon Schaefer, and he may need to ask other people to come in and help. We're going to have to do some training to help to make that work. 18, if a, per, if a witness or person asked for counsel finds the matter too complex or difficult, then it may be wise to bring in a person of a similar or greater wisdom to help to resolve the matter. A mature Christian might involve an officer. A deacon might involve an elder. You get the point. Now, page 9, mediation. This is something, again, this happens in step 2. Mediation is typically what needs to happen when you've got people who couldn't handle step one. And so you're typically bringing in a person who's more mature, and they're going to help you. The mediation might involve other witnesses as well, and those other witnesses would probably be more passive. Okay, if you've got a guy who's mature enough to do mediation, the other witness, if they're present, is going to be somebody who's probably more passive. The mediation with or without other witnesses. When the witnesses of a higher or equal station, gifting, and or age, mediation is something to be considered. The witness is seeking to help to understand and keep order and to push for resolution. So he's kind of managing the business, helping to push for resolution. Now here's the thing. When you're a witness, 
being a witness is always sort of a calling card for some trouble. Okay? But if you're a mediator, it's especially likely that people will be upset with you because you're the most active kind of witness. You're the most active kind of witness. So mediation is difficult, and that's why especially officers are likely to have trouble because they have all their troubles. They have other people's troubles. They're mediating in the things, and they have to deal with things as a court. So the witness as a mediator is seeking to help to understand and to keep order and to push for resolution. So good mediators and judges in courts will know the Ten Commandments well, study it in the larger catechism. You will study the law of Moses. That means you're going to read Exodus 20 through the end of Deuteronomy a lot. So there's, there's the Cliff Notes version. You want to find the verses in the Bible that are going to teach you about case law. They're all there. Okay, so you've got half of Exodus to read. You've got Leviticus to read. And you can, you can skip the part about sacrifices for that. There's like half the book. Okay, but you've got half of Exodus. You've got half of Leviticus. You've got Numbers. And you've got Deuteronomy. You've basically got three books to study if you want to study the case law. We all act like it's this like ridiculously long thing and it's not well organized. It's pretty well organized. And it's not that long. And it covers all of life. So you study the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses, and the Book of Proverbs. Those are things that you, if you want to be a good mediator, that's what you study. You want to be good at resolving conflict resolution, that's what you're going to study. The mediator is going to seek to use tools like the four G's to guide the conversation. He's going to make sure that charges and problems are all lined up and they're clear. Okay, so what is it you're saying the other person is doing wrong again? Whatever the mediator has to spend a lot of time clarifying, that's what you know in step one you didn't do a good job of. Okay, so guess how, see how a mediator is going to train you in how you could have done a better job at step one. And if you're the person who was not willing to do step one and give it serious attention, this is where you're going to start to feel ashamed because you're going to go, I made this difficult. I made this hard. I didn't want to do it. And now we have this other person pulling us along to do this stuff. We should have been able to do this ourselves. So they're going to make sure that charges and problems are lined up and clear. They're going to make participants do the work. Okay? If you just do everything for the other person, then what you're going to do is you're just going to, they're going to not know what's going on. You want them to do the work. If you're mediating, you want to help other people to do the work, to organize their own information, to organize their charges. You're going to ask them to do things to make it so that they are learning as they're going. If the other people won't do the work, the mediator needs to raise this to step three going, these people are being lazy and they're not trying to be peacemakers. The mediator is now responsible for pushing them along to do that work and to say, what are you guys doing? You're destroying the peace of the church by not actually trying here. The mediator's job is to fact find and to organize the facts. What happened? Get it from both sides. You agree with that? You agree with what he said? You let them cross-examine each other in front of you. You know who all the parties are, and you already know who else has been involved in the situation. Okay, you're, you're pulling that information together. You're helping to clear up 
what needs to be done. What's the cleanup mess? You are, you are triaging the situation when you're a mediator. And then you're trying to bring resolution by having all the parties agree. Or if they can't agree, you're going to issue a judgment or an assessment of what you think is going on. And here are the questions you're going you're gonna to be looking to get answered. Okay? Who did what wrong and who did what right? That's one. You're helping people to admit the wrongs that they need to apologize for. And you're helping them to make sure to apologize, giving those wrongs to all the right parties without weasel words. You were trying to figure out what harms were caused by wrong action or by neglect. And you're getting people to acknowledge those harms. That will help them to have a deeper sense of what they have done wrong. You are then going to work through helping those people to understand what they need to commit to alter. Hey, what, what have they done that they should have done differently? What, what, what should they have done? You're showing them positively what to put on. Notice this is aligning up with how they should apologize, right? So you're giving them the positive instruction while also helping them to prepare to apologize. You're helping them to see lawful consequences for actions and to accept those lawful consequences. And you start to analyze what can be done to restore the harms now. Who can do that? Who should do that? This relates to sentencing rather than who's guilty. Right, when you've determined somebody's guilty of something, you're trying to then figure out the sentence that would be just. What should they do? And we're told in Matthew 5, hey, be careful to negotiate before you get to the judge. Right? And a mediator is going to help you to see soberly what ought to be done. And so once it's plain to you what ought to be done from the scriptures, make sure that you don't have to have a court tell you that. Now, the law of Moses is the main thing that's going to help you to see the proportionality of punishments and restoration. So things like stealing, things like harms are going to be dealt with there. And so it's going to give us a sense of that. So again, it's basically the middle of Deuteronomy, sorry, the middle of Exodus through Deuteronomy. And then the mediator's goal is to help to make sure that forgiveness is given in a powerful way. So forgiveness is, is made plain. It's not just, okay, I forgive you. It's, okay, you, this other person went through accepting, you know, admitting what was wrong, the acknowledging the harms, the accepting of lawful consequences, committing to alter their behavior, and asking for forgiveness, and then the meaning of forgiveness. Okay, this has been an arduous process. This has been difficult. This has been a big deal. Do you understand what this forgiveness means? And so you're pushing people to make sure that this is actually resolved. And that's that final step. And so the four promises of forgiveness are going to be emphasized there. So I would encourage you, if you're a mediator, to make sure that you actually explicitly talk about the four promises of forgiveness when you're helping to bring this thing to an end. The other thing for a mediator is you're responsible, go to page 10, to see that an acceptable conclusion has been reached. Um, <laughs> by the time you're at the mediator, overlooking is kind of gone as an option. 
Now, you can interpret things differently through the discussion as a result of just defense. You can see external repentance, but you kind of get stuck with options three, four, and five by the time you have a mediator. So that's the mediator's role, to push those things forward, and they're helping to hand over the information in a way where a court could deal with it efficiently. Okay, so they're, they're helping with that. An active witness doesn't do that, and this is what everybody wants. When, if you're called as a witness, generally this is what people want. You prefer to have relatively low responsibility and to be able to talk about the stuff or not talk about the stuff. This is sort of the, as a witness, this is what we prefer. The other thing is, as Americans, we don't like to think about anybody as our superior or inferior, so we just prefer that everybody be in a conversation as total equals. This is the preferred condition as Americans. So the active witness is what we all have a bias toward in Anno Domini 2023 in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, this is where we all have a bias. We all are going to think, we should just show up and be active witnesses who say what we want when we want. Active witnesses participate in the discussion when the witness is basically a peer and has not been asked to mediate. The prosecuting party then takes the lead in pushing the issue. So the person who raised the offense takes the lead, the person who initiated the conflict resolution. And the defendant manages their own rights and defends their own rights, but there's a collaborative effort to come to a good conclusion and to see process generally done. This is going to feel weird and wasteful when the witness is less mature than the parties in a pretty dramatic way. They should just be a passive witness. Or when the witness is way more mature and they should be mediating. That's when it's going to feel weird. And you're going to kind of, you're going to, you're going to start to realize, right, you know, imagine for just a second that we have a person who's just converted a month ago and a person who's converted three months ago and they bring me along as a witness. And I'm just watching them and occasionally going, you know, maybe you should think about this. And I go back to watching them, okay? It would feel weird. And if you were watching me and we're on TV, it would feel like a sitcom because of the absurdity of me not helping them to sort through the problem. Okay, so when there's an obviously more mature person who has a station especially, and they just are an active witness in terms of joining in and being an equal participant, it's going to feel weird. Also, if Deacon Schaefer and I are having a dispute, and we pull in a person as a witness who was converted three months ago, and we ask them to be a witness, and they try to be an active witness, it's going to feel weird. It's going to feel weird because you're going to be like, that doesn't seem like they're really helping to sort this stuff out. You should have picked a better witness, whatever. But the idea is more plain as to why it feels weird. So if you're clearly not going to be adding a lot to the discussion, you want to be more passive. And if you're clearly going to have a ton to add, you should probably be mediating. The parties in the conflict are the ones that sort of pick the activity level of the witnesses. And so they need to be wise about that. The witness doesn't get to really pick their activity level. They're going to pick between being active or being passive. But, but at the same time, sometimes it's so obvious that nobody asks, and they kind of, everybody just expects you to behave in a certain way. So if I'm involved... 
to a certain extent, everybody kind of just expects me to mediate. So but we want to start having a more explicit way of referring to these things so we understand what the roles are and what expectations are. So if you're asking for witnesses to come, you want to be able to say, I'd like you to mediate, or I'd like you to be an active witness, or I'd like you to be a passive witness. Now, passive witnesses... A passive witness is someone who gives an opinion when asked. And the prosecuting party then takes the lead and the defendant manages their own rights. The passive witness might have a duty to express things when they're not asked if they're seeing sin go on in that meeting. Okay, so this will be weird and off-putting. If the active parties are not obviously higher in rank, gifting, and or age. So when there's a discussion with people who are of similar rank, gifting, and age, having a person merely be a passive witness will obviously feel insulting. So passivity may not be continued if one side is abusing the other in the conflict. Intervention is necessary when participants are domineering or being overly passive or are immature and unskilled. So Westminster Fellowship wrote this about uh, step two. This is from the bylaws. I think it's the addendum uh, that was about Matthew 18. So I think Surindra Gangadine wrote this. But it says in step two, one or two more persons are included one or two or more persons are included in the process of resolution this adds weight of more witnesses to the truth of scripture and to the truth of the response of the parties involved it makes it clear that the concern is in step 2 and is a grave matter being taken seriously focus of discussion should be on what does scripture teach and how does it apply Discussion of the issue as defined from step one can go on until resolution or if there is no resolution until it is appropriate to go to step three. So that's the church court. Three attempts at resolution are reasonable. If there is no resolution at step two, witness to this should be sent up to step three in writing. If there is resolution, there should be a stated agreement of both parties to avoid having to revisit the issue in the future. So if you have... Step two, when you've got witnesses, write down what the conclusion was. So you don't have to repeat the work. So, step two is essentially you're talking about the issues with witnesses, and that is something that increases the pressure to resolve it. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights?